What's that? Oh, uh, well, we got to start now. So, But uh, as from the very beginning, we have ended up being about a chapter or two uh, short each message. i not not getting through um, that far, and today will be no different. But uh, so even though we're entitled Israel wants a king, chapter 7 and 8, we probably won't get there, at least only start. But at some point, we'll try to get We'll try to get everything that they worked out. But let's, um, we want to, I want to, uh, deal with, uh, the Philistines taking the ark and finish up that subject from last week. Why don't we stand though and read the first few verses of chapter five, perhaps the whole chapter, um, which will, uh, be part of the subject today. And like I say, whether we get seven or eight or all, well, we'll see how that goes. Well, let's read First Samuel chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Now, the interesting thing, as we'll see here in a moment, Ebenezer doesn't even, as the name, doesn't even exist yet. But the writer writing after the fact is naming the place, but the place won't be named until, I think, chapter 7. So it's kind of just keep that in mind when we get to that part. When, then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. That's their God, obviously. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had put, had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. <clears throat> this is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. And the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors. Uh, exactly what these tumors are uh, is a question. I think the KJV uh, more or less translates it with a word that would be a, we would is hemorrhoids. It's certainly possible, but people were dying from this. It was it was something that was very unpleasant and deadly. Some people think it was the plague. It's, it's hard to know, but it's bad, whatever it is. Verse 7, And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. And of course, again, since gods were localized, well, maybe if we take it over here, uh, it might not be as bad. You know, over here, but of course, they don't understand that God is the God of the whole earth. <clears throat> Verse 10. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron, but as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought around to us the ark of God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven and to see them. 
So that's kind of giving an idea of what happened to the Philistines after they captured the ark. We, we actually left off back in chapter 4 with Eli sitting there blind by now and being told uh, that uh, Israel had been defeated, his sons were dead, and the ark of the covenant had been captured by the Philistines. And yet, as I mentioned before, I think Eli was a believer, and one, one reason for that is found in verse 13, where it says that when he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. So, what, what bothered Eli was uh, that the ark of God had been captured, and Eli was concerned about the honor of the Lord and, and these things. And then we read in verse 18, as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, that is, the man who was telling them not only about the ark of God, but that his sons had died in battle. But as soon as it says he heard about the ark of God, he fell over backwards. And he died, his neck was broken, and he died. So I think, you know, that's a pretty good indication that Eli was a believer. He was, he was a child of God, but <clears throat> even though he had a miserable failure in his life with his sons that led to his, their death, his death, and, uh, the uh, judgment on his whole family's line, yet it's, it's good in one sense to say, well, you know, he was still a believer. Even though he had some problems, right? Because we all have problems. We all have sin. And while the great, and then we'll get into this in the second message, the grace of God transforms us and makes us new creatures. Of course, we're talking about an Old Testament saint here. Yet, that doesn't mean that we can't be saved even though we might fall into sin. And so, then we read where, uh, one of the wife of Phineas, one of his sons, uh, was pregnant when she heard the news. Uh, she, uh, dies during child, well, at, right after childbirth. And she calls her first, her, this child, Inkabod, which means the glory has departed. And what, what really happened here, um, was that it wasn't the glory of the Lord had departed because the ark was captured. I think probably that's how, how she's kind of seeing this, how Eli perhaps saw it, that the ark was captured, therefore the, the ark kind of was symbolic of the glory of God, it's where the glory of God rested it while it was in the tabernacle. So you can see why they would say, well the glory of God has been taken away from Israel or has departed. But I think what we, you know, knowing more than they did about all this, looking back, we can say that the ark had been captured because the glory of God had already departed from Israel. They, that's what the book of Judges is all about. We see the heart of, of Israel. So it, it's the result is that the glory of God uh, was not there. And uh, and so the ark was, was captured because they had misused the ark, you know, because of their sinfulness. It was disobedience that led to its capture. And so, you know, just some interesting things there that we want to uh, think about. Well, as we come to chapter 5 then, and the, we see the ark next to the god Dagon, we, we uh, study the effects of the ark here being an ash god, and we see here that God is demonstrating, and all this, this whole section is about God demonstrating his glory, and everything that's fallen upon Israel is because Israel has not been consumed with the glory of God. They 
they have been in idolatry and they have uh, sin was permeating their lives because they did not care that much about the Lord. And so, it, this is all about God, right? And God is demonstrating why they this is wrong. And so what we see here, illustrated, and I mean, it's been actually happening, is that they set his ark next to uh, their God, and in the morning their God has fallen down. It's, it couldn't be more obvious here who the true God is, right? And yet it's interesting that these events in no way caused the Philistines to worship the true God. They set him back up. They will not submit to the true God because their God, as all the religions in that area did, catered to the flesh. So we're not going to repent. We're not going to follow the true God. We'll just set up our God. We'll continue to worship the way we want to. We won't let our natural desires be interrupted. And so you can educate people. Of all the dangers and harms of substance abuse, of, of alcoholism, or whatever, and if their hearts aren't changed, it doesn't matter because their their God is their their bellies. Their God is is the flesh. They will not submit to the true God. And notice here that the second day, that the Dagon falls over and his head and arms fall off and break off inevitably at the threshold of the door. So what do they do? Well, okay. Now we, we know that this is not a true God. We Now we know we have to worship Yahweh. No. They sanctify as holy the very place where their God is demonstrated that their God is no God. His head and hands break off. He's helpless. He can't think. He can't see. He can't do anything. I think it's, it's kind of symbolic with his, the head and hands breaking off. <clears throat> so they sanctify the very spot where their God is shown to be no God so that they will no longer step on the threshold. They always make sure they step over the threshold. What in commemoration of their God being humble. <clears throat> so it, it's amazing how people would rather live in the consequences of sin rather than do the right thing. Well, it's because that's what sin is. Sin is rebellion. Sin is I will do things my, my way. And I'd rather be miserable in my sin than to submit to the Lord. <clears throat> So, again, you, you can tell someone, okay, this, you can continue to take these drugs. It's going to ruin your life. And everybody knows that. There's, there's no one on, on this planet who doesn't understand that, right? But it doesn't matter. Because I'm going to do what I want to do. And I understand, of course, that you know addiction becomes a problem, too, so that a lot of people want to stop and can't. But uh, we understand you know, that there's more to it than just that. It's not just addiction. And, and, and that the reason they got involved in it to start with is because of these things. Let me give you another example that's maybe more prevalent in our situation in the churches. You can point a couple to the Lord's teaching about marriage, about what it is to love one another. You know, a couple come to you and they're having relationship problems and maybe they're on the verge of divorce. And you can say, well, look, um, learn to love one another as you have been loved. You can, you can deal with the gospel. You can understand, you can explain why divorce, even on a natural level, will 
harm the family if there's children involved, will cause financial ruin in many cases or make things much more difficult. And say, look, God has created marriage that if we will sacrificially love one another, motivated by the gospel, the way I have been loved, we can have a wonderful relationship and it, and it can be a wonderful thing. And, and we can raise our children in this atmosphere and all the different wonderful things about marriage, but they'd rather uh, have divorce and all the consequences of that or, or go to some secular counselor to try to, who they think is going to somehow get them to work it out in some way, rather than submitting to Christ, right? Because they love themselves more than they love their spouses, and they will not honor the Lord. And, and, and you, you know, everybody sees the consequences of divorce. Everybody sees the consequences of marriages where people aren't loved properly, where we where, where we aren't humble. You see, you see abuse that takes place in marriage, both of spouses and children. <clears throat> who wants to live like that? Well, I've seen lots of couples who want to live like that. Well, they complain about it. They might come to the pastor or somebody and, and ask for help. But when you say, okay, the gospel is where your help lies, and, and there's, a, there's a relationship with the Lord that is involved in all this, well, no, don't want any of that. We'll, we'll sooner go to divorce court than to submit to Christ. And, and so that's what we're seeing here, these, uh, these, the men of Ashdod in, in the city, the Philistines, the consequences of submitting to God will not uh, happen to, in the natural man. <clears throat> and so they will endure a miserable relationship, a miserable family life, going back to the, the marriage thing, rather than to, uh, you know, I've, I've talked to couples about this, you know, who come to me. Like, first of all, you're not in church. You, you guys don't go to church, so you're not even listening to what God has You don't know what God has. You're not submitting to the Lord because you're not submitting to the Word of God. You're not putting yourself under the authority of God's Word and under the ministry of God's Word. Well, I, we want your help, but we don't want we don't want Christ. They, they, they think the pastor, I guess, is this is this another marriage counselor who's going to give me a technique, right? So I, I'm not going to be honest before the Lord. I'm not going to submit to Him. I'd rather have a miserable family life. Then what you got to answer. And I'll give you another example. Uh, remember the Gerardines, the Gatherings, who, when Jesus threw the, uh, um, demons out of the maniac and into the swine, they did not want to worship the man who restored another man out, away from, uh, out of the control of Satan, casting demons into the pigs who demonstrated the power of God, so it restored this man's sanity. No, we'd rather have the pigs. We want the money that those pigs give us. We don't want Christ. So that's a demonstration of, of what we're saying here. <clears throat> so as you see these Philistines and the reaction to all this, it would be hilarious if it wasn't so tragic, right? We see people do some silly things, but at the end of the day, when you realize that this is really spiritual, this is really uh, an attack upon the Lord, it ceases to be funny. <clears throat> and so if someone said their God was like Humpty Dumpty, had to 
but uh, notice that while Dagon needs his worshippers to help him, that's another thing we see here, right? Dagon is helpless, or certainly for Yahweh, and so his worshippers have to restore him back to his place because he can't take care of himself, and yet God, no matter where he is, he's in full control. And so eventually, while Israel is going about their business, we'll, we'll see here in a moment that the ark comes, without any help of God, with, of man, the ark comes right back to them. They, they're, they're, they don't know what to do, and here comes the ark, because God doesn't need their prayers, he doesn't need their cheers, he doesn't need their help to be God. And one of the marks of pagan gods is that they can only be happy or satisfied by the gifts and worshipers of their followers. That, that's that's a, a typical pagan idea that God, that the, the God, their God, whatever whoever it is, needs you in some way. And we got to be very careful that we don't bring that kind of thinking into uh, our worship of the true God. Uh, one, I was reading about a one of the Babylonian religions of the time that, that began in Babylon uh, had the well, there was a, uh, a a tradition or a legend of basically Noah and the Ark. Uh, they changed Noah's name because something had been handed down, obviously word of mouth for a while. <clears throat> but in it, uh, their their spin on it, their pagan spin on it was that there that, that the gods did destroy the earth. Uh, and so this man, when he, uh, when the waters recede and he gets out of the ark, he makes an altar. Well, in their way of thinking, the gods, to be fed and nourished, they, that's why he brings sacrifices to them and they feed on those sacrifices and that's what keeps them going. So, obviously, with the flood taking these, this, these, uh, many weeks or months, the gods didn't have anything to eat. So they were in pretty bad shape. And so when, when uh, the, uh, Noah makes the uh, ark and, and sacrifice, they, they say it, you, the gods were swarming like flies over the sacrifice because they were devouring like a fly would in that day and all that. So you, you see that um, the, how the gods needed our man sacrifice, or they would start to languish. They would grow hungry. They would grow weak. And that's that's just you can understand why that's a man-centered religion. It's God needs me, and it gets carried over into this idea that well, um, I've got to do something to get on God's good side. It's something I've got to do, and it's not that much different. And so we need to be careful of thoughts and even songs that speak of God having no feet but our feet, having no hands but our hands, uh, because that's 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 putting a spin on it that, that I think the meaning to the Lord. If God doesn't need us to do His work, now God loves us and God delights to use us to do His work to bring us into uh, the uh, work of God. But he doesn't need it. He's not, see, and the point is, God is not a needy God. As long as you understand that, I think, you know, that to be safe theologically, God is not a needy God. And so that necessitates grace. 
So if God doesn't need anything I can give him, then he's the one who dispenses everything. That's why Paul says there in Psalm 1 Corinthians 4, who of you among you has anything that you did not receive from God's hand, right? Because God is not a needy God. He's the one who supplies our needs. <clears throat> so what we see here is that the true God is serious about his honor. He does, and he takes it seriously to the point that he will send these diseases and strike people dead to drive the point home. He judges the Philistines severely. He's not just having sport with them, and there's a sense in which there's, there's, it's, it's a little bit humorous, right, that, that they got these falling down. But at the end of the day, because the people don't repent and recognize the lesson the Lord gave them, they, they suffer greatly for this. <clears throat> there, there are consequences, then, for not honoring God as one should. God takes that seriously. Um, and so this brings no repentance, only the further rejection of God. They refuse to bow to a God who doesn't serve them, who doesn't need them. And I think here's a good example of how the Old Testament God, and I say that tongue-in-cheek maybe, leave, leaves the Gentile world in darkness. It's something that God explains in the New Testament, that this leaves a time of darkness. And, uh, and that's what, you know, when Christ came did his work, Satan was bound. He no longer could deceive the nation, Revelation 20 says. We, we see here how Satan has bound, God has allowed Satan to bind them, keep them in darkness. And I think here's a good example of that. So that brings us then to chapter 6, where they finally return the, uh, ark to Israel. They finally realize that they cannot win. So again, they don't repent. They just say, well, let's send the God back. To where it belongs. And the priests say, well, you don't want to just do that without a gift. So they make five golden tumors, five golden hemorrhoids, I don't know what, what they were exactly. They represented the sickness, the disease, and five golden rats, which again, maybe this was a bubonic plague, plague because that was often uh, spread through rats and mice and so forth like that, right? So they devise the one last test, just to make sure, if it's not obvious enough, how do we know that truly this is the God of Israel doing? Well, uh, let's take two milk calves, two milk cows, and put, put their calves in uh, somewhere else, and we'll take the milk cows. In case you didn't, you know, you work, haven't ever been on a dairy farm or something, you know, cows uh, only milk. When they have been bred and had calves, right? So they, they will dry up if you don't keep breeding them. So there's a constant cycle of that. So these cows have been bred. So they were milk cows. They were milking at that time. So they had calves nearby. They put them like on a cart with an ark and they say, now, what's a milk cow going to do? A cow that's just giving birth to a calf. Well, they're going to go look for their calves. They're, they're probably over there bleeding, perhaps, you know, right? Or, Whatever can do, and uh, but then, no, they they take a right to uh, back to Israel, uh, back to the Jews, you know. So that demonstrates, and, and the Philistines had enough sense to realize that only uh, something supernatural would cause that to happen. So again, kind of an interesting little uh, thing that's going on here. They don't, um, and, and when that happens, 
what do the Philistines do? Well, they don't run back to Ashdod and tear down the Dagon's image. It seemed like that would be the final straw that would break the camel's back, right, with their uh, God. They don't recognize God for who he is. And, and again, Christians can fall into that. You know, who refuse to worship a God. And you know, I've heard people say this. Uh, literally say it to me, and I've read about it, and, you know, it's, it's not an unusual thing. Rather than worship, I will not worship a God who would consign people to hell, or would send, in one case, a member saying, a God who would not, because we're, we're kind of dealing with the election, and the sovereignty of God, and he said, if God would send my grandfather to hell, I can't worship a God like that. And this is a man in Bible school. Well, wait just a minute. You're, you're, you're saying that what God, the God, you, this is what God's got to be like if I'm going to submit to him? If God's, God is who he is, you submit to whoever he is. Because that's, you know, he's God. You see, it's, it's not, it's, it's, a, it's something we can all fall into if we don't keep these things before us. Modern, sophisticated man, though, is really no different spiritually than these Philistines, right? We, we have the term, He's a Philistine, meaning he's kind of uncultured, right? Well, see, that's a arrogant, modern man thing. We're all just like those Philistines, and we're only a generation away from returning to the Philistines, and I think we're seeing that kind of stuff come through, that um, when, when man is left to himself, this is what we do. So, um, in the latter part of Chapter 6, let's just read, starting in verse 19. They send them back. The, the, the part ends up in Bashemish, a Jewish town. And uh, it says in verse 19, And he struck some of the men of Bashemish, because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them. And the people mourned, because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Bashemish said, Who is able to stand before the Lord? This holy God. Well, finally, somebody gets it, right? And to whom shall he go up away from us? I don't know where where are we going to where, where's he going to go? Because, you know, they don't they don't want the ark there either. So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirim, saying, "The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you." Now, now, now we see that the Lord is not above striking his own people dead. If they mishandle the art, and again, it's, it's about not taking him seriously. It, it's not explicit as to what does it mean when they look upon the ark. It could be that they, some of them, were curious and they opened the lid, something they knew they shouldn't do, and looked into it. That certainly could have brought death. Uh, in all likelihood, the ark wasn't covered when it came into the place, and I don't think God would have just struck them dead because they just inadvertently saw the ark. You know, had to recognize for what it was. But I, I think what it is, is they didn't take it seriously. They looked at it and they, they, they treated it with, uh, not the honor. They knew that it was to be covered. I think if, if, when they saw it, they had won and covered it as soon as possible, I don't think they would have died. But they, they're, they're, they're demonstrating a lack of regard for God's holiness as the Philistines did. And so they paid the price that the Philistines did. And, I think one reason I believe that is because once God struck these men dead, 
who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, right? They get it. They understand. God is not going to take this lightly. You're going to honor him or you're going to pay the consequences. And, and in a sense, it's Christianity 101, right? This is why we are saved, to, to know God, to worship God, to see him as he is, not to get a relationship with God so that I, you know, he'll fix my life. No, that might be a consequence of being saved, but no. It is to understand God and worship him and honor him as we should. And this is something that is so lost upon our culture and certainly even upon a lot of Christians today, I heard some guys talking about this, I thought they did a good job of, you know, some of the songs that we, we have today, uh, kind of like the Caleb type songs. It's, you know, and I've, I've had to listen to this sometimes on hours on end, I was paying one hour for that's just, that's what they wanted to listen to, that's what was going on the whole time today I was there. And, it, there was, there was nothing about being saved from your sin, about repentance, about the glory of God, being saved from the wrath of God. It was all about, this is the word that they were using, and it's so true, my brokenness. We're broken. But, which is true, you know, sin is brokenness, to say the least. But now it's all about, well, Jesus died to fill your brokenness. No, Jesus died because you're a sinner under the wrath of God. He, he died to restore you back to, the, to God. For your sins to be forgiven. And if you purposely, and it, and it is purposely, we don't want to talk about sin, but brokenness and loneliness, that, that God heals my loneliness, you might be alone for the rest of your life. And there's a lot of Christians who have uh, rotted in jail. God didn't heal their brokenness. I would assume that their loneliness. Now, he... He gave them his son, and they have his son with them at all times. So, in that sense, their loneliness is now fulfilled in Jesus. But when, this is happening when you, when when you are at ease and peace, and everything's going your way, then your greatest sin becomes when all those things are taken away from you. So that's what that's what we become like, and we de-emphasize our sinfulness. Because we have de-emphasized God's holiness, and that our big problem is that we have rebelled against God's holiness, and that's being demonstrated to us here, right? But we water it down, uh, and, and I think we do in, in many ways the very same thing that we're reading about here, and it becomes a problem, rightly so. So. The severe judgment comes upon Israel isn't over some, you know, gross sin. You know, that, it doesn't seem like today, you know, it, the only sin that really matters is really bad sin. And we, we just de-emphasize this. But God here didn't kill them because they are fallen into some gross sin. He kills them because they took, they took him lightly. Now, I'm glad that this is something that God has done, he no longer, he, I mean he. I think he does this, but he doesn't do it in an overt way like he did here, often, which sometimes maybe is a bad thing because we don't like, like the Corinthian church, and people were dying and sick and it's like, well, we don't get it. We, we explain it away, you know, well some, you know, some pastor's church and people die and they're sick, 
No, it's God's judgment. And, and here it's obvious. But at least we get to learn from them. They fail to be passionate about the Lord. And so we got to be careful that we don't fall into this trap of a casual God. And, and it's not that God doesn't love us in Christ. There's certain conditions, right? God is a wonderful God. Serving Him is a wonderful thing. But we cannot treat God like the man upstairs, like like just you know a friend. He's more than that. And we can't be tolerant of other gods. And if we're told that we have to treat all religions and all every everything out there as equal. Well, no, there are some things that are bad, some things that are good, some religions that are one religion that is true and everything else is not. It's kind of like the old unfortunate saying, God is my co-pilot. And I'm not, you know, whoever came up with that, maybe didn't realize what they were doing. I'm not trying to be overly critical, but if he's your co-pilot, he's not your king. I wonder if maybe it came from that picture. I remember the picture, you've all seen him of the guy at the helm of the a boat steering the boat in a storm, and Jesus is behind, pointing the way. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. There's a sense in which that's true, but 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 he's such a co-pilot. He's the pilot. He, he's the Lord of glory. It's all about him, and it's just easy for us to to come up with these cute, quaint sayings that really start to change what what we're doing here, what what Christianity is all about. And so judgment fell on both of these peoples. And I think it goes a long way in helping us understand the world and, and the providence that goes along with it. We uh the verse that we have been using here a couple times here late late uh there's a month later you I forgot to get to that. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? See, this is New Testament. And Peter says, really, not, you know, it's the same God. God hasn't changed. He's given us a way to have peace with God. But the standard is still the same. You serve, you, you submit to the God of glory as God, right? And so if the righteous there is scarcely paid, and that word scarcely means difficult, with difficulty, God is going to teach us to honor him as we should, and it's often going to be trials and tribulation and whatever. And if he's willing to do it to his children, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Well, we're reading about that right now. God means to get us from point A to point B. And he's going to do whatever it takes to the degree that we understand that honoring him in our life is what it is all about. And it'll be better for us once we get those, get that lesson. It doesn't mean that he's going to remove us from affliction because it's that affliction that keeps reminding us about these things. But it will bring peace and joy and strength during those times when we can trust God and, and, and know him and submit to him and find 
So, um, let me just remind ourselves what we dealt with last week. Remember, this goes back to the use, the ungodly use of the ark, right? God will not be used to back up our agenda. People said, well, we got a problem here with the Philistines. Why don't we do this? And, you know, it's, God will have to help us. And so we talked a little bit about prayer. Prayer is to bring us into submission unto Him for, and for His help to do His will. I think a lot of people use prayer like the Jews were using that, uh, art. We've got something we want, and so let's ask God for it. It's, it's a partial truth. When we have needs, we are to ask God for help. But to do those things that God has already told us to do, to, to do his will, Jesus, um, you know, made that clear in the, when he taught us to pray, in the, the Lord's book called the Lord's Prayer, um, Lord, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Whatever I'm about to pray for, it's for that. Not to do my will. And, and, and part of prayer, and, and it's a fast subject, we can't get into all that, but I think one, one thing to think about, prayer is not just petitioning God. Prayer can be, for instance, I think, meditation upon the Word. That, that can be prayer as well, because God has spoken to us through His Word, and now as we think about it, we think about what God says, and we start to ask Him for help, ask Him to help us understand this, help the power to obey it, ask it uh, for ability to apply it. If we meditate upon the Word of God, there's communication there. Because prayer is ultimately just communicating with God. And so again, it's, it's, a, it's a bad subject to think about. But then we also see the depth of spiritual death and the spiritual set up for God and it falls down to the that which means flesh, which is what we spend most of our lesson on today. So, that brings us then to today's message, chapter 7 through 8. Um, let's see if we want to even get into this. It's almost to the point now where it doesn't really pay to do that. It, let's just, uh, but in a sense, though, that uh, catches us up right now. We are ready to uh, start. Uh, in chapter 7 and 8. So are there any questions or comments on Lord, what, what interesting passages that teach us so much about you when we just stop and think about what's going on and remind us, Lord, about that really nothing's changed, that uh, the same message of the Old Testament is the same as the New in so many ways. And we ask so that you would open up our hearts not only to understand your word, but primarily to submit to the obvious teachings of it. Ask your blessings upon the next service in Jesus' name.